0: If you're a baseball fan, you might know the name Tim Kirchin, an ESPN Major League Baseball analyst. In one of his articles, Kirchin told a story about Wayne Gross and Ed Farmer, uh, two baseball players from the 70s and the 80s. Gross hit a home run off of Farmer, and then Gross took his good old time rounding the bases, which enraged Farmer, and Farmer never pitched to Gross again until three years later, Farmer became Gross's teammate. In spring training, on the first pitch of batting practice, Farmer rifled a 90-mile-per-hour fastball and beaned Gross right in the middle of the back. And Gross screamed, What was that for? And Farmer yelled, That was for three years ago. And Gross replied, Okay. Kirchin said, Baseball players are the most macho, remorseless, vengeful people I've ever met. If you mess with their game, if you mess with them, if you mess with a teammate, they are going to get revenge, no, <clears throat> excuse me. no matter how long it takes, even if it's three years, even if the guy is your new teammate. Stan Williams, another major league baseball pitcher, would carry a list of names in his hat so he wouldn't forget the guys that he needed to get. Now, folks, throwing that retaliation pitch, so to speak, may feel good for a moment, but will it make us happy in the long run? The the highway to happiness goes right through the beautiful towns of compassion, forgiveness, and kindness. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy. In the first four Beatitudes, Jesus talks a lot about true happiness. He teaches us what that looks like poverty of spirit, grief over sin, meekness, a desire for righteousness. These are the marks of truly happy people. Why? They are happy because the kingdom of heaven is theirs, true comfort is theirs, all the earth is theirs, satisfaction is theirs. Is there a structure to the Beatitudes? One source said, quote, the first four Beatitudes express in one way or another our dependence on God. The next three, the outworking of that dependence, end of quote. William Hendrickson considered the fifth through seventh Beatitude parallel responses to God's redeeming grace. So blessed are the merciful brings us to the outworking of a person's dependence on God. Their response to God's redeeming grace, mercy, pureness of heart, peacefulness, even gladness in persecution are working of, uh, workings of the Spirit in a person's heart. In life, there is somewhat of a, a guilt, grace, gratitude structure or sequence to the Beatitudes, especially considering Matthew's mention of repentance and faith in chapters 3 and 4. And I hope that you're able to apply the four interpretive points to all of the Beatitudes. So here's how they would sound with mercy. The Sermon on the Mount, number one, exhibits the righteousness of the King. When we hear blessed are the merciful, our minds should go to Christ, who alone is merciful towards us as a faithful high priest. Hebrews 2.17 says that Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. When a person is merciful, they possess derivative mercy from Christ. He is the source of their mercy. Number two, expounds the ethics of the kingdom. The fifth beatitude tells you that God's kingdom is a merciful kingdom. Entrance into the kingdom is contingent upon receiving God's mercy. And in that kingdom is generosity, kindness, goodness, and benevolence. They prevail. Three, Exposes our sin, guilt, and desperate need of God's grace in Christ. When we hear, blessed are the merciful, I think there probably are some things coming to mind, maybe, if we think hard enough, where we were not merciful. And that uncovers our desperate need of God's mercy. Four, explains how believers should seek to obey their Heavenly Father by the Spirit's power in gratitude for His grace. When we hear, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, it tells us how to live a happy life of obedience to our Father's will and explains the benefits of belonging to Christ. We will receive mercy. So again, keep those four interpretive points in mind as we continue to move through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, They will keep you from slipping into moralism or slipping into legalism or, or some other misinterpretation. So here's what I'd like to do. First, I want to define mercy so we can distinguish it from grace. Second, I want to show you that God alone is merciful. Third, I want to help you better understand uh, this somewhat confusing beatitude, the, the order that it's written in. And fourth, I want to help you apply it for your greater happiness. First, what is the difference between mercy and grace? So here's a thought that's helped me. It's a song from my sophomore year of high school, so we're going back a ways. Uh, The Newsboys' Real Good Thing. You might have heard it. And the chorus goes like this. When you don't get, when, I'm sorry, when we don't get what we deserve, that's a real good thing, a real good thing. When we get what we don't deserve, that's a real good thing, a real good thing. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve from God. Grace is when we get what we don't deserve from God, but it's really more than that, though. That's probably too simplistic. Mercy is God's compassion or kind forbearance shown toward his enemies. God takes pity, and he withholds the full extent of his righteous indignation, which is deserved. Lewis Burkhoff called mercy God's tender compassion. Burkhoff said about mercy, the goodness or love of God shown to those who are in misery or distress. In his mercy, God reveals himself as a compassionate God who pities those who are in mercy, uh, misery and is ever ready to relieve their distress. I think that's particularly helpful. God is ever ready to relieve Distress. That's God's merciful heart. He shows pity to the distressed soul by giving relief. Here's another angle mercy is God's discretionary power as judge to pardon his enemies. And we need to think carefully about this. God doesn't mitigate or lessen punishment for sin. See, God poured out the full punishment of his justice and righteous wrath upon his own son on the cross in order to fully pardon his enemies and adopt them into his family. Why would God do this? Because God has pity on sinners and works to give them good things in his son. Grace is slightly different. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. Grace is God's favor, kindness, or goodwill towards those who don't deserve his kindness. Grace is God's generosity in giving good things, good gifts, to those who have received his mercy. We receive mercy in Christ, who took our punishment, but we are also reconciled to God to receive his favor, to receive his blessings. Therein is our true happiness. So... If someone is merciful, it means that they are full of mercy, full of pity, full of tender compassion towards others. Who is full of mercy? Not sinners who are naturally inclined to hate God and others. Jesus said that out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, False witness, slander, mercy is not on Jesus' list. Who is merciful? I I saw a picture this week online of two doors from two adjacent homes, maybe a duplex or something, and the doors were about six inches apart uh, with one shared uh, set of concrete steps leading up to the two front doors. The shared steps were about five feet or so wide. It had snowed. And on the left, two and a half feet of the steps, the snow was nicely cleared away. And, and then on the, the right two and a half feet, the snow was still covering the steps several inches thick. One of the neighbors had cleared only their small side of the concrete narrow steps. And the caption of the picture read, being neighbors doesn't make you friends. Now, I am not sure what happened between those neighbors, but that's pretty uncharitable. Two and a half feet, come on, clear the steps. So, I guess sometimes we just don't consider people worthy of our mercy. Mercy is hard. Who is merciful? Secondly, God alone is merciful. Mercy is inherent to God's being. The Belgic Confession says of the three persons of the Godhead, all three are one in truth and power, in goodness and mercy. So the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one in mercy. The Belgic Confession also says that God is perfectly merciful and also very just. And adds this, so God made known his justice toward his son, who was charged with our sin. And he poured out his goodness and mercy on us, who are guilty and worthy of damnation, giving to us his son to die by a most perfect love and raising him to life for our justification in order that by him we might have immortality and eternal life. The cross shouts out to you and to me, God is merciful. In Exodus 33, Moses asked the Lord, please show me your glory. Well, here's how God responded. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious And will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face Shall not be seen. Now listen to what God said as he passed Moses. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third. ...and the fourth generation. Saints, God is glorious in part because of his mercy. That's gospel. God reveals himself... ...in special revelation in his scripture as a merciful God. He he, he wants us to know that he forgives iniquity... and, ...and transgression and sin... And at the same time, he wants us to know that he is serious about sin and will not clear the guilty. God has mercy on whom he has mercy and everyone else receives his frightening justice. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses warns the people of the consequences of idolatry. In prophetic fashion, Moses predicts the future idolatry of Israel. He painted a very bleak picture in this passage. But then in Deuteronomy 4, verses 30 and 31, Moses told Israel this. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice for The Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Folks, God is merciful. He will not forget his great covenant of grace. Mercy is inherent to God's covenant of grace, inherent to the gospel, because mercy is inherent to the character and being God. Of God. When David sinned against God and foolishly conducted a census, David was deeply convicted of his sin. He asked the Lord to take away his iniquity. The Lord gave David a choice of three horrific consequences. And in the gravity of that moment, David told his seer, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercy is great. Nehemiah 9 is a great example of God's mercy. Consider how unfaithful Israel was to God's law and to his covenants. They were persistently stiff-necked, to use the term of Scripture. But listen to some of the things that the Levites then prayed to the Lord. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious, and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Saints, that is concrete evidence that the Lord God is merciful and gracious even in the face of our unfaithfulness. This blatant disobedience. God's pity and compassion and goodness are immense and they are immense for his people. Psalm 86, verse 15 sings, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Twice in 1 Timothy, Paul refers to God as blessed. Same word. I want you to think about that. Why would Paul call God happy? One big reason is because mercy is inherent to the being and nature of God. Okay, we know what mercy means, and we know that God alone is merciful, but what does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy? That sounds a bit confusing. What does the fifth beatitude mean? It sounds like God will only extend mercy to those who earn it or deserve it by being merciful. Doesn't it sound like that? Doesn't it sound kind of like works righteousness? Hey, God is merciful. He'll extend mercy to you as long as you extend mercy to others first. Is that what Jesus means? If so, what does that mean for us who are instinctively unmerciful? Uh Uh-oh. I mean, that's not a helpful verse then. We're all damned. Well, I'll cut to the chase. That's not what Jesus means. That's not what Jesus means. We know that's not what Jesus means because that would contradict the gospel. That would contradict the teachings of Jesus. That would contradict the clear message of all scripture. We don't merit anything from God. We don't merit anything from God. So we need to interpret what Jesus says here in light of many other scriptures on God's sovereign grace and justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. We have to be very careful. First, a few helpful tips. Remember that Jesus is teaching his disciples. He said this to repentant and believing people who had already received God's mercy. So the fifth beatitude assumes that mercy has all already been received from God. second. The first four Beatitudes, especially the first, poor in spirit, and the fourth, hunger and thirst for righteousness, clarify that the fifth Beatitude cannot be works righteousness or earning mercy. I think the essence of the fifth Beatitude is this, God has given me mercy in Christ, therefore... I must now show mercy to others in gratitude for receiving God's mercy. As God's child, and as I extend mercy to others, I am assured that God will continue to show me mercy. I think that's it. I don't think being merciful is the cause of our receiving mercy from God, but rather the confirmation or we could say the assurance that God will continue to show us mercy. I think Heidelberg question 86 helps us. It asks, since we have been delivered from our misery by grace alone through Christ, without any merit of our own, Why must we yet do good works? Or we could ask it this way. Why must we show mercy to others? It answers. Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit to be his image. So that with our whole life we may show ourselves thankful to God for his benefits and he may be praised by us further That we ourselves may be assured of our faith by its fruits. And that by our godly walk of life we may win our neighbors for Christ. Okay, brothers and sisters, because Christ has redeemed us, Christ is renewing us by his Holy Spirit to be merciful as he is merciful. As we extend mercy to others by the power of his Holy Spirit, We show ourselves thankful to God for receiving his mercy in Christ. Then our expressions of mercy assure us that our faith and union with Christ are authentic. They're real. So when we are merciful, God's spirit graciously assures us from within us that God will continue to show us mercy, which is a great comfort for those united to Christ. God will be merciful to us. If we live unmerciful lives, we should not be confident that God will show mercy to us. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Only merciful people are happily assured that they have received God's mercy and will receive God's mercy in the end. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? Now, I I agree with James Boyce who said this. For what Jesus actually was saying was that we are to show mercy because we have received mercy and are confident that we will continue to receive it. Conversely, if we do not show mercy to others, we show that we either understand little of that mercy by which we have been saved, or else have never actually received it. I think Boyce was very insightful here. This is a sobering thought. When you receive God's immeasurable mercy day after day after day after day, how can you not show mercy to other people? Mercilessness is grotesque ingratitude. If you profess Christ, but are harsh, cruel, vindictive, calloused, or vengeful, one of two things is true of you. Either you understand God's mercy very little and are painfully immature in your faith, or... You are a hypocrite that doesn't actually know Christ. Both are bad. I think Tim Keller was right when he said, quote, mercy and forgiveness must be free and unmerited to the wrongdoer. If the wrongdoer has to do something to merit it, then it isn't mercy, end of quote. If you have to be merciful before God extends you mercy, you will never receive his mercy. Never. Because without his mercy, you will hate God and your neighbor. But if God first extends you mercy by saving you in Christ, And then produces mercy in you to extend to others. Your practice of mercy becomes an expression of thankfulness to God. And it becomes assurance that you have truly received the mercy of God in Christ. Don't misunderstand the fifth beatitude. Or you will end up in legalism. Or moralism. Or antinomianism. All of which distort Christ's point. Now. Is Jesus using scare tactics to motivate people to be merciful? Hey, you better be merciful because if you're not, God won't have mercy on you. Is that Jesus' tone? Is that what Jesus is trying to say? Here's a better interpretation. The happiest people are those who receive God's mercy in Christ and with great Thankfulness, liberally extend mercy to others as they delight in God's continued promise of mercy for them. I think that's Jesus' idea. When you taste the sweetness of God's mercy towards you, then you are just so happy to have received it, so thankful to have received it. His goodness is so sweet to your taste that all you really want to do is live to extend others' mercy for the glory of your merciful God, to be like your merciful God. So what does it mean for you to show mercy to others? I think uh, understanding the application Of mercy is less difficult than actually applying mercy to other people. We can understand what it is, but doing it, that's another thing. So let's begin with a parable that Jesus told in Matthew 18. Jesus was answering Peter's question about how many times should we forgive our brother? Here's the story that Jesus told Therefore, the kingdom of heaven will be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, a conservative estimate of 10,000 talents in today's economy would equate to around $6 billion. An almost incalculable amount of money. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. Now, that's a stiff penalty. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. What unfathomable mercy. Can you imagine what that would feel like? But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Folks, in today's economy, a rough estimate that's $12,000. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe! So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. Folks, let that sink in. God gives His servants inestimable and undeserved mercy first. Then He requires every single one of His servants to give mercy to others. Servants of God, you had a sin debt to pay that was so big you couldn't pay it in a million, billion, trillion years. You can't pay it. God saw you in your sin. He saw you in your guilt. He saw you in your miserable and afflicted position and condition. He saw you in your spiritual poverty. He saw you in your lack of righteousness. He saw you and he took pity on you. He had compassion for you he extended you immeasurable mercy because jesus paid your debt god forgave your debt now as objects of divine mercy god commands you to give mercy to others If the gospel means very, very little to you, you, eh, I get it, okay, and it means very little to you, you will not be a merciful person. You'll be a tyrant. You will diminish the mercy showed to you, you will amplify the offenses done against you, and you will justify your merciless towards others, towards your offenders. All of that is bad. But when God's Mercy in the gospel astonishes you, blows you away when it makes you so happy and so thankful to be the object of God's divine mercy. Only then will you draw strength from Christ to do the very hard work of extending others' mercy as he gives it to you. In Luke 6:36, when Jesus was talking about loving enemies, he said, Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Your Father commands you to imitate Him. One study note commented, God's mercy is not a reward earned by our showing mercy to others. Rather, those who recognize the magnitude of the mercy He has shown them will treat others as their Father has treated them. Might we be slow to show mercy to others because we have yet to understand the magnitude of our own sin and the magnitude of God's mercy towards us? Might part of our problem be that we are ungrateful for receiving God's mercy because we have underestimated our need of it? When churches proclaim all gospel, and no law, they begin to forget the reality and seriousness of sin which undervalues God's mercy in Christ and ultimately leads people to spiritual apathy and spiritual callousness towards others. In similar fashion, when churches proclaim all law and no gospel, they begin to forget the reality and goodness of God's mercy in Christ and end up pushing legalism, which either crushes people with hopelessness or puffs them up with self-righteousness, both of which lead to spiritual callousness towards others. It is when a church balances God's law and gospel, when it lives and breathes God's law and gospel, that it extends mercy to others in humility and love. Imbalanced theology always leads to callousness towards others in one way or another do you know how great your sins and misery are do you know how god mercifully delivered you from all of your sin and misery through the life death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his son. Do you know how you are to be grateful to God for showing you such mercy? The deeper these truths make their way into our hearts, penetrate our hearts, the more merciful we will be to others. Is the gospel of God's mercy towards you in Christ actively making you a more compassionate person An empathetic person. A sympathetic, considerate, forgiving, and kind-hearted person. Even to your worst enemies. Leon Morris wrote this. There are people who show by their habitual merciful deeds that they have responded to God's love and are living by his grace. They will receive mercy on the last day. Isn't that what you want? In the last day, God extends you his mercy. Jesus may have been alluding to Psalm 18 25, which says, With the merciful you show yourself merciful. Saints, show that you have received mercy, God's mercy in Christ by being merciful to others, and be assured in that that you have God's mercy in the end. Show mercy. And people may take advantage of you. They may abuse you. They they may disregard you. But regardless of how people treat you, be merciful to them because it will assure you of God's mercy to you. And you will be happy in that. If you are always calculating how to throw that retaliation pitch, you will not be happy. If you carry around a list of all the people that you need to get, you will not be happy. You will be miserable, a miserable person. If not in this life, in the end. You might remember the 1984 blockbuster hit, The Karate Kid. It ranks among the highest grossing films of 1984. It's a classic. In one scene, the teenager, Daniel LaRusso, goes with his friend, Mr. Miyagi, uh, and they walk into a dojo, or a, a karate school, where John Kreese, the sensei of the... The Cobra Kai dojo was teaching his students, some of whom had previously beat Daniel up. And listen to what Sensei Kreese taught his karate students. We do not train to be merciful here. Mercy is for the weak. Here, in the streets, in competition, a man confronts you, he is the enemy, an enemy deserves no mercy. Think about that. An enemy deserves no mercy. Like John Kreese, a lot of people today are miserable, bitter, tormented, and deeply troubled because they will not show mercy. The gospel is great news because God showed and shows mercy to his enemies who deserve no mercy. This is not the heart of God, Karate Kid, If you are poor in spirit, if you mourn your sin, if you are humble and meek, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, what J.C. Ryle said will be true of you. They pity all who are suffering either from sin or sorrow and are tenderly desirous to make their sufferings less. They are full of good works and endeavors to do good. Blessed are all such. Both in this life and that to come, they shall reap a rich reward. You know, this is how Corey Ten Boone's sister, uh, Betsy, thought about her Nazi tormentors. When God's mercy is a delight to your heart, you are tenderly desirous of easing the suffering of others. You are full of good works. Your life is spent figuring out ways. How can I do good to others, even my worst enemies? How can I extend mercy? Oh, that they would find the mercy of God today. I hope you had a a chance to read uh, my article this week in the scroll down titled Confessing and Repenting of Murder. I think we underestimate what God demands in the sixth commandment. Heidelberg 107 asks, is it enough then that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way. So if you put the guns down and you put the knives down, are we okay at that point? Is that going far enough? No, 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 no. The Heidelberg answers no. When God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves to show patience, peace, gentleness. What comes next? Mercy and friendliness toward him, to protect him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Might we start with friendliness to our enemies? Might we start with peace and patience and gentleness and mercy, just extending mercy? Brothers and sisters, the way to a happy life is the way of mercy. Desiring harm for others That must be killed in your heart. It must be killed in my heart. And by God's grace and spirit, as those who belong to Christ, brothers and sisters, we belong to our king. We must strive to do good to our enemies. Only then will we be truly happy.